0: Cuff radio is about to begin.
1: Everybody loves a hero. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Hey,
0: welcome to Real Cuff. And if you're one of those people that love to watch, like, the ID channel, our first forty-eight, are even the unsolved mysteries. Are, are there's a lot of you out there that read, you know, unsolved mystery books. Um, this show is for you. You know, do you want to help actually solve a cold case? Do you want to come alongside and and, I mean, there's so there's so many cold cases and so many unsolved are so many, uh, what we'd say, Jane Doe and John Doe cases out there that have never been solved, and so today, I'm interviewing Dr. David Middleman, and he is the CEO of a company called Orthram, and it's a Texas-based company, and with everything going on with DNA, I'm, I'm telling you, I am really excited about this because I want to learn more about DNA, but it's it's so exciting to see some of these things, and especially when he starts talking about some of the cases they solved. Now, David, if I ask you anything and you can't answer it right now, just say we'll talk about it at a later time, and we'll know, and we'll go on. But Dr. David, how are you doing tonight?
1: I'm doing good. I appreciate you uh, chatting with me.
0: Well, we're so glad you came on because I know that the CODIS, and and I'm not going to bother to go through and explain all that because if they don't know about it, there are so many shows that I listened to that you already did with some different police officers and everything else, which they need to go back and listen to some of the shows. Um, they all fell under the name of uh, Orthram, right? Isn't that how you pronounce your company? Yeah, it's Orthram, but uh, but either way works. Well. Orthram. Okay. So there's there's a lot of uh, you know different shows on YouTube that that are worth going going back and watching because you you say so much information and you know our show is going to probably be 20 minutes, not two hours like some of the other ones but um one thing I love to see is how God's hand moves in someone's life and I was just watching you know your education and how you got to where you're at now and it's just so cool to see that Do you you want to tell us a little about your background
1: sure I I suppose uh, it's it's a series of of lucky accidents that got me to uh to a spot where I could I could work on this current problem of, of solving, uh, helping law enforcement solve cold cases, um, and, and some of these unsolvable crimes. But my, my background is genetics. Uh, I've worked in DNA testing most of my life. I started during this project it was called the Human Genome Project. Uh, I worked on it in the 90s. And it was this effort to figure out what what human DNA looks like, what's the sequence of DNA letters that make up a human being. And, and from there, pretty much ever since worked on ways to either measure or understand um, what all the DNA letters in our DNA mean. And I had an interesting uh, stay. uh, Most of my work was in biomedicine or or medical testing, but I had an interesting kind of stay over at a company that did uh, genetic genealogy and learned for the first time how consumers and not doctors, how just anyone, you know, any ordinary person is using DNA testing to, to build out their family trees, learn about relatives, connect with folks. And um, later on, that, that kind of combination of, of experience and education in the DNA testing technology, but then also kind of some of these other uses for DNA testing technology, like finding family, um, all that ended up being really valuable when we started off from.
0: Well, what's, what's really interesting is There's so many people now that have put their DNA up on 23andMe, Ancestry.com, and there's others. But now correct me if if I'm wrong on this, but my understanding is after you get that done, then you've got to download it and put it up on a, a data format, right, a data site.
1: Yeah, there, there's many people that have tested with a consumer DNA testing company. Um, I believe right now there's probably around 40 million people that have tested. And that's, that's pretty cool because 10 years ago, less than a million people have tested. So there's been tremendous growth in the consumer genetic testing industry um, from uh, less than a million 10 years ago to now 40 million people tested. Those people that have tested can learn a lot about their families and go on this path of self-discovery. If they want to help solve a cold case, they have to take an extra step right now in that uh, they would generally download their data and upload it to databases that uh, work with law enforcement. And they would opt in so that their data could be used in a search, not just to identify family, but specifically for law enforcement to identify victims or sometimes perpetrators to crimes. So, so there's that extra step, as you mentioned, in uh, downloading the data from the provider that, that generated it in the first place and then opting in and making it accessible to investigators at work to try to, you know, figure out who is at a crime scene.
0: Well, I was talking to a friend of mine today, and he, he tested, and he couldn't remember if it was 23andMe or Ancestry.com, and the reason he tested is because in the 70s, his sister disappeared and they've never been able to find her or find what happened to her. Uh, And then another thing he told me today was that, you know, his sister actually had a baby that she gave up for adoption, so he was hoping maybe something would pop up on that. And um, But I told him, I said, I'm pretty sure you've got to now upload it into, um, like your company is DNA Solves, which is your database, and then there's another one which is GEDmatch and I'm sure there's a ton more but
1: yeah so 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 if you have data available then then any database that works for law enforcement you can contribute your data uh, at DNA solves the only thing you can do on our database is help solve you know a case so there's really nothing else you can do um, on other platforms, uh, there's, there's usually an option to opt in and to specifically consent uh, to having your data used this way because some, some of the public genealogy sites, they might be used to do both things. They might be used to uh, uh, solve a genealogical puzzle or, or to work a case. So either way, um, you would take that data, upload it to databases that law enforcement can use and through whatever means necessary um, or required on the website, opt in comes up so that your data can be used.
0: Yeah, a lot of that came after the golden state killer, right? Because then a lot of people were saying, well, wait a minute, they used the DNA to find him. Uh, I don't understand what they were so upset about because, you know, they, they solve a, a crime, get a guy off the street, and
1: people get all mad. Well, I think, I think that uh, everyone is aligned on wanting to solve uh, the case, and I think everyone wants to take perpetrators off the street. I think what people prefer is the ability to have, uh, to at least to know there's choice. And so I think the, the only real difference pre- and post-Golden State Killer is that before the Golden State Killer case was announced, I don't think people understood or, or considered perhaps the possibility that the data could be used to solve the case. Now, post-Golden State Killer, we know that the data can be used that way. And these new new features that allow you to consent to search or opt in to be searched along with other folks that want to help solve a case, it provides you choice. And so that way, um, you know, my guess is uh, most of the people that I've interacted with, they, they want to help solve a case as well, but, but it's the gold standard to offer them the opportunity if they did not want to participate to not participate. And so I think, I think that's the nuance. I think I think the, the process is very similar pre- and post golden state killer just want to make sure that people have the option that they understand uh, so I guess it's, it's not just consent but like informed consent they understand how the data will be used and they have the option to participate or not participate but I'm very encouraged because it seems like most of the folks I've seen have been very excited to participate and generally it seems that the uh, total number of folks consenting seems to be increasing so every time you hear a good story a case gets solved um, an unknown person was identified and returned to family. The um, criminals taken off the streets. Every one of these stories, um, each of these pieces of good news, I think uh, excites and, energi- and en- energizes folks and, and, and motivates them to then pay it forward and contribute their data to help solve the next case. And I think it's a wonderful thing. I think you know it's a one a very obvious way to bring value to society. Very humanitarian, um, and I and I love it. I think it's, it's why we do what we do. We're very excited to help kind of close the books on some of these cases that have been um, worked on for decades and have just not reached a point of resolution. And there's no way for a family to even begin to kind of process, um, you know, and start that grieving process and, and really try to move towards something that might eventually approximate closure. You can't do that if you can't get some basic answers about what happened to your loved ones, whether they're missing or they're the victim of a crime. You need, you need answers. And these people are waiting. They wait even decades later. It's interesting because a lot of the cases that we have helped law enforcement bring to closure, uh, a lot of these cases, that some of these are half a century old, and, and there's, there's, there's been family that are still there waiting uh, to know what happened to the person that was uh, important to them. So anyway, I think these stories should be told. It's important to tell these stories because it kind of contextualizes why uh, all of us do what we do, and, and generally I think that gets people excited about trying to help and be part of the next hole.
0: Well, one of the stories, you know, talking about people that submitted their DNA, um, the guy that was in the lake for seven years.
1: You want to tell us a little about that story? Yeah, there was was an unidentified man. His name, we ended up figuring out he was uh, Rodney Johnson, um, he was a, a homicide victim, actually. They uh, so so he had gone missing in the late '80s, uh, and, and that was that was the end of the story of Rodney Johnson. He went missing in the late '80s, and uh, and unrelated in the parallel timeline, uh, in the '90s, uh, some fishermen were out on the lake, it was Lake Stickney, um, and uh, in Snohomish County, and uh, they find his body that surfaced. It had been weighed down in the lake. And it probably been there. um, uh, Now we know probably for, you know, good five, seven years. And, um, and this, uh, this body had surfaced, um, obviously was not recognizable, not in good shape, but the body had surfaced. And when the medical examiner looked at the body, they, uh, they found a bullet hole to the back of the skull. So this wasn't someone that just like fell into a lake. Um, This is someone that was a homicide victim. He was shot. uh, And then after being shot, uh, tied down, Uh, with something that weighed him down and kept him underwater for all these years. And, you know, after his discovery in the 90s, he spent another, uh, you know, over 20 years um, on the shelf at an Emmy's office because there's just not a lot of clues to go on when you find, you know, parts of someone that has been submerged for, for, for decades, you know, for years. And then, and then after that, just, you know, unidentified for decades further. So um, this is a case where all other, Weeds were explored, and, and there weren't a lot of weeds to begin with. They were exhausted. Uh, conventional DNA testing, search through CODIS, all that all that stuff that you'd expect to be done uh, was done. Um, they tried to do facial reconstructions of this of this young man, and as it turns out, they weren't really able to to kind of gauge what his uh, his you know biogeographical um, ancestry was, uh, and so you know they had rendered him in a forensic sketch as a white man. Uh, as a black man, um, I believe as someone that was Hispanic or biracial, they had so many different pictures of him, um, and so there just really wasn't much to go on. And uh, and ultimately, the case went cold. So we got involved with Snohomish County and um, uh, worked with the, uh, um, the law enforcement officers and the medical examiner's office, and we did some testing, and, and we did this, you know, there was very little evidence in this case you know, the, it was a lot of bacterial contamination, degraded DNA, but we ended up uh, pulling uh, less than 200 picograms, so it's like 0.2 nanograms um, from of, of human DNA from this case, and just to give you a perspective, like, if you do, like, a 23andMe test and you swab your cheek or spit in a tube, you would test, like, 23andMe or Ancestry, um, you're going to get, like, 750 to 1,000 nanograms, so, like, when you do a consumer test, you're working with 750 to 1,000 nanograms. What we had in this case was 0.2 nanograms, so about a fifth of one nanogram. And from this little tiny piece of DNA, uh, we were able to generate a genealogical profile. We searched it using uh, databases that work with uh, law enforcement and, uh, as we discussed, uh, looked for relatives uh, that were both genetically related and also consented uh, to law enforcement search, helped the investigators narrow in on who the person was turns out he had uh, ended up having a, a living uh, a living father and, uh, and brother. Um, they were not in the database. We actually matched to a cousin. But uh, we eventually found through genealogy, a father and a brother did confirmatory testing and showed that, in fact, he was Rodney Johnson. So this is a case where, you know, law enforcement had exhausted all leads. And I think this is actually a good example of how a lot of these unidentified cases go. Um, you know, sometimes there's a a, a, a geographical separation where the person went missing where the were found sometimes there's a time separation like in this case where he went missing at one point but he was discovered later um these kind of these kind of uh you know separations in time and distance they can make it hard to match unidentified people back to uh missing people not every person that's missing goes missing and so if there's a if there's a disconnect that is created you know by some circumstance you know, time uh, or distance, or, or just, you know, the, you know, the inconsistent reporting of someone being missing, then DNA testing can, can break through and get an answer. And it's also an interesting case just because, in this particular case, um, this is the lowest reported amount of DNA that's been used with this method to make an identification. I mean, it's a very small amount of DNA. And so, um, anyways, for all those reasons, uh, it, was a, it was very fulfilling and exciting to work on that project because you have a person that was unidentified all this time. Um, and, and, and finally got reconnected. And, and luckily, the father and the brother were still alive to, to get the news. Um, and, and, you know, as a final point, I will say that, you know, it's very hard. Um, it's, it's very hard to uh, pursue, you know, a case that involves an unidentified victim. How do you get justice for someone you don't even know? And so the identification of Rodney Johnson has allowed investigators to move on to the next part of the investigation which is how did he get there because he didn't put the bullet holes in his own head and so so someone's responsible for this and now law enforcement can work that case there's no way for them to work the case that they have no idea who it is and uh, and so anyways we're just very happy to have helped them and we've gone on to work a number of other cases with them they're uh, they're a great set of investigators so let me ask you what's the oldest
0: case you've done so far
1: um, we, helped, uh, we helped another laboratory, Bodie Technology. They, um, they had a case of uh, the remains of a woman, and we built the genealogical profile for Bodie. Um, Bodie was working with a group called the Porchlight Project, and we helped them build a profile for a woman that later on, uh, through genealogy, was determined to have died in 1881. So that's a pretty old case.
0: Wow, yeah.
1: Bodie's the the one that's in New Jersey, correct? Um, Bodie is located um, in in Virginia. Virginia, okay.
0: So, uh, I definitely want to talk about the Walker case. That's one of my favorite ones, and I guess just because I remember that as I, you know, I was a teenager when that happened, and it, it was just kind of devastating because you're watching this unfold and nothing ever happened about it. And that happened in 74, I believe it was. Um, I I believe, uh, yeah, 1974. And then, so y'all just helped them solve
1: this last year. Yeah. It was, it was 2020. Um, you know, the, the Carla Walker case, uh, was, was, it's interesting how that case unfolded. Um, you know Paul Holes, uh, who was involved in, in helping uh, apprehend the Golden State Killer. Um, he had a TV show in which he had covered, um, uh, you know, a number of cases that had unsolved. This was one of them, and uh, and so I think that uh, I think that in doing uh, this this show, he had showcased a few of these cases. This one was here in Texas. We talked to him and. You know, he, he said that it, they had actually already tried advanced methods. They had tried genetic genealogy through some other uh, organizations and methods and just didn't work out. And not every case is going to be a fit for this technology. But I told him, I said, um, you know, we do things a little differently. We're the only company in the country that uh, does the whole process in-house. And we've been able to adapt DNA technology to very terrible DNA, um, very low quantity, very old DNA, degraded. Um, as, as evidenced by these uh, two things we just talked about. This this woman that was identified uh, as having died in 1881, and this guy that was identified from 0.2 uh, nanograms of, uh, of DNA. And, um, and so, uh, you know, we said, let us have a chance. Let's take a look at it. And we looked at the evidence, and there was just a little bit left. And sure enough, we were able to build uh, a really nice profile for uh, some unknown DNA that was found uh, on Carla Walker, and, uh, and, and that eventually through investigative work from the Fort Worth police department got tied to a suspect. And he was, uh, you know, they confirmed through conventional, uh, SGR testing that he was in fact, the person that was at the scene. Um, he, uh, he actually ended up, uh, I believe confessing on a radio show and later to law enforcement, he was, uh, arrested. I believe he was indicted last fall. And, uh, if I remember correctly, he should be headed to court uh, in August. So, so next month and, and. We'll see how things unfold.
0: Yeah, some of the things that were strange in the case when I read it was, you know, they actually found a gun magazine there that belonged to his gun, but he claimed at the time his gun had been stolen, and they just didn't have enough evidence to prove anything against him. So all these years, he got away with it. So when they finally arrested him, he's 77 years old with a wife and two kids, and, uh, You know, they showed up at the house, and he denied everything until, you know, it kind of hit the – got him in there, and he started talking or whatever. But, you know, that's just incredible. Especially, I saw the interview with his son, I mean, the the brother of the girl that it happened to, and it just – that's just heartbreaking, all those
1: years, and the boyfriend. Yeah, people – yeah, I don't think people understand, like, you know, these families are irreparably broken – when, when either someone goes missing or, or someone is the victim of a crime. And so um, even some of these cases that are older and, you know, folks have kind of moved on to other things, the, the families can never move on. So they're, they're in a perpetual state of, uh, of just, you know, uh, kind of limbo in, in trying to find out what had happened. Yeah, the,
0: the little uh, Delta Dawn girl, um, which I think that was like 1980 or 82 or something,
1: yeah, it's another case. Um, a girl that was uh, a, a little girl, uh, she was tossed over a, a bridge. Um, investigators had, had pulled her, the recovery team had pulled her out of the water, but she was never identified. And um, some of the, you know, when we went to the press release, uh, we went to the press release in person to, to kind of uh, share the news and discuss how the case was, was solved. Um, some of the very same folks, some of the very same investigators that were there 38 years ago Um, even even the guy that had helped pull her out of the water was there. It was was heartbreaking because it's not just the family that's waiting for answers, but a lot of these investigators and early responders were traumatized, and and they themselves have always wanted an answer. They wanted to know what happened. So there's a lot of good that comes from being able to reconnect uh, the person back to family, Um, and it does a lot of good, I think, for the family, for the friends. For folks that have essentially adopted the case along the way, um, and so it was—it was, it was uh, very nice to see so many people turn out for the press conference. Um, even 38 years later, no one had forgotten this little girl, and they were all—they um, were all really, really, really eager to understand, you know, who she was, what had happened, um, and, and we're just glad that we were able to play a part in that process. Well, plus the fact
0: now she has a tombstone with the proper name and her family at least have closure for that side but they're still they never have found the mother though
1: correct yeah the 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 mother is uh is is missing um i think there's a you know some speculation on behalf of the investigators as to what may or may not have happened and i think that's an ongoing investigation that they're researching but as of right now she remains missing um and 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 certainly there was no no body, um of, of you know her body was not recovered at the scene so so I think it's unclear, um, you know, what the outcome was for her, but she remains officially a missing person.
0: Well, that will be Chapter 2 of this case to figure that one out. But,
1: okay, uh, so I, I want to so. talk to you. Go ahead. Well, I was just saying I, I, I certainly hope so. It would be good to be able to put a name to uh, to all the folks that are unidentified or missing. And, Right, and, and there's, there's a lot. Um,
0: so I've been talking to a lot of the nurses at the hospitals that I'm at, and they kind of feel the same way I do. You know, I think it was back in the 80s where they, they had us all trained on these rape kits, and I didn't realize the, the rape kits were just kind of going on the shelf and they weren't being tested. So they ended up with a
1: backlog of rape kits? There, 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 there was a, a very large backlog of, um, of, of kits uh, that were collected after these uh, sex assaults. And there's a, there's a really great organization, um, the joyful heart foundation, um, that has worked to kind of advocate, uh, they have a website called EndTheBacklog.org, and they've worked to help kind of facilitate, uh, clearing through this backlog of cases, that, um, that, that, you know, have kits that have yet to be uh, tested through some kind of DNA testing. But, but I will tell you that um, something else to be uh, aware of is that a lot of these cases, even after they run the kit, uh, the person they're looking for may not be in CODIS uh, for any number of reasons. And so there is a the remaining work to be done even after you run a kit, and that work is to then, if they can't find the person through CODIS, to use other methods, including some of the methods that we use at Authram, To help identify who the perpetrators of these sex assaults are. Yeah, because
0: especially when you see some of them show up six or seven times, you know their uh, DNA showing up, but they don't know who it is, and nothing's getting done. Yeah, so somewhere they they... got to come. Yeah, they got to come along and figure out who it is so they can be taken off the street. Yeah, if, uh, if CODIS is unable to
1: identify uh, someone from a crime scene, whether they're the perpetrator, by the way, or a victim, you know, you, you always start with CODIS and you look to see, can you identify the person from the crime scene, victim or perpetrator with CODIS? And if CODIS is not able to identify the person you're looking for, then there are now avenues and, 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 and ways to leverage advanced DNA testing, such as what we do at Authorum, to help generate the leads that would allow investigators to find out who the person is. And once you figure out who the person is, the beauty of having done the uh, CODIS profile first is that you have a way to also confirm your answer. So, um, you know, for example, in the case of Carla Walker, before they got involved with us, they had built a, a profile that they put into CODIS for the DNA that was found on Carla Walker. So there was a profile already there. It just didn't match to anybody. And after we had helped generate the leads that identified the person who left that DNA. Law enforcement used CODIS, the CODIS kind of testing, to confirm um, that, in fact, we had uh, led them to the right person because the work we do is investigation only. Which is why, you know, you'll never hear me say that Ultram is solving a case. Ultram generates leads. Law enforcement solves the case by confirming the leads, doing the work that they have to do, and then ultimately doing uh, conventional DNA testing that confirms uh, in fact that the result is correct that's what solves the case is the is the, is the test at the end that confirms the identity um, everything before that is just investigational only
0: well and that's the one of the the big things is the the law enforcement needs to realize um, that they need to turn to someone like you to help them so they can solve the case
1: I think law enforcement's pretty excited about uh, a lot of these new technologies I think like with all new technologies, it takes time to get the technology disseminated. I think that it takes time for uh, funding agencies uh, and, you know, and federal funding agencies to uh, understand and kind of set policy for how these methods will be used and then to define funding opportunities for them. And as all that happens, as the technology is better understood, it becomes part of grant announcements and, and all that other stuff that I think, uh, I think that that's what allows the technology to be used more broadly. And we certainly want that. We don't want to just solve like the top five interesting cases. We'd like to eventually democratize this to be used in all cases. Um, it should be used any anytime that CODIS is unable to help. Just like people right now employ uh, a bunch of methods. You know, you might try fingerprint searches. You might try uh, forensic facial reconstructions. There's a lot of tools in the forensic toolkit. and um, and, and these tools uh, you use the tool you need to get the job done. And so if CODIS, which is an, another tool, if CODIS doesn't, uh, uh, you know, produce the answer, then then you can turn to other tools, of which what we do it often is just one of many um, tools that could be used to generate leads that, that steer towards an identity uh, to a person that's unknown but at a crime scene.
0: So when we talk about CODIS, we're talking about like 20 markers. But when we talk about, what you're doing we're talking about
1: hundreds and hundreds of markers correct codis is about 20 markers what we do is uh, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers and so so we're looking at a lot more information and we're generally doing it in evidence that has been previously unsuitable uh and uh and 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 that that evidence is um is, is, you know, is generally like these like very low-quantity, highly degraded kind of pieces of evidence. So we're unlocking evidence that previously was inaccessible, and we're measuring, instead of 20, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers.
0: One of the best things that I've noticed, I, it's, the doors are just opening up because of what y'all are doing. You know, it's it's just it's well, like you said, you know, you barely got anything off that guy that was in the lake. Yeah, and
1: it's uh, it's remarkable, it's remarkable how much how much uh, you can you know how much you can do right now with this technology, and I think the technology is uh, in its early days and will only continue to improve.
0: So, how long is like turnaround usually when you determine, yes, I, we can get a DNA off a DNA sample from this person that's going to work.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So, so generally, from the day that the evidence hits our doorstep to the day that we produce a profile, um, I think that, uh, that we're looking at about 12 weeks uh, end to end from, from evidence to profile.
0: Now one of the things that I thought was a really great thing that y'all do is when you come alongside the uh you know the police station um and the crowdfunding for some of these
1: cases that they can't get funding for um yeah so so like like I told you I think with new technology um with new technology, there's this situation that arises, right, in which it's new, uh, agencies are still getting their head around it, and, and, and there may not be funding opportunities. You know, budgets are, 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 are prepared and approved in advance, and, and if they had not contemplated this technology, uh, it, this technology may not have been included. And so I think that, um, you know, there are cases that kind of fall through the cracks or, or have to go on a waiting list. But at the same time, there are families that have already been waiting for decades and um, and if we can, you know, help at least as many as we can, not wait too long. We'd like to. We don't want to. We want to give people answers while they're still there to receive them. And and so we started a crowdfunding platform that you mentioned, DNASolves.com. That's DNA S.com. And and the way that works is that uh, you know law enforcement, if they have a case, uh, they don't have funding. We'll, we'll post it and allow anyone to come in and help. Uh, contribute towards getting that case funded and it's been very very effective we've been able to help restore identities for a number of unidentified folks and uh and and anyways we love we love doing it and you know anyone anyone can get involved in dna solves and even if you don't want to contribute necessarily to a case just sharing the story um spreading it around on social media getting the word out we've even had cases where just getting the story talked about has led to leads or tips that have helped crack the case. So we're very excited about DNA solves. I think it has a lot of potential not just to help fund but also get the word out on cases. And uh, and you kind of think of it like a like a like a crime stoppers tip line. Um, and, and and again we've had cases where we just, just by sharing the story and keeping the case alive in the minds of, of people um, has led to someone to come forward and say, I know something about this person and here's who they might be. And, and you just never know. You're, you, know you, you never know if you're one, one tip away from getting the information you need to kind of help bring this person who's unidentified back to uh, their family.
0: Well, and that's definitely one way that somebody can help solve a cold case is you know, by giving to some of these crowdfunding you know, or ones that, that you've got already posted I mean, you're already trying to raise the money so you, you can do the uh, DNA and everything on them.
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: And then the other thing, too, like you said, if they would spread it on social media, uh, you know, you may not have the money to give to the crowdfunding, but somebody out there does. And somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute. You know, I know that guy. or He lived in my area. And so, yeah, I I agree with you. The other thing is what we talked about at the beginning, uploading your own DNA because you never know if you're going to be related to somebody who's missing or somebody who's, you know, has been murdered or, you know, it just opens the
1: door for so many things. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, and these are like, these are distant relatives. So it's not like, you know, it, it may not be that you have a close relative that's missing, but you may be distantly related. Might be a third or fourth cousin to someone that is uh, is missing, and and these aren't necessarily the kind of uh, folks that you'd have over for Thanksgiving or family reunion, but but in the in the in the kind of framework of genetics, we're all kind of genetic cousins. So any number of us could be very valuable at helping um, restore the identity to any any number of other people, and uh, and so so it really is like a community approach. Working as a group, you can help identify folks. that, Essentially, been identified for sometimes as much as decades.
0: Well, Doctor David, I don't want to keep you on the line very much longer, but I, I do want to thank you for coming on, and uh, you know, hopefully, this will encourage some people to get out there
1: and and help with these cases. Yeah, I I, uh, I encourage everyone to visit uh, DNA Solves DNA S O L V E S. You know, we're we're always excited to get uh, as many viewers over there as possible, and we love feedback. Uh, We have a Facebook group called DNA Solves Advocates, and you can join that group and kind of provide feedback, get involved in other ways. And I appreciate you having me. I'm always happy to talk about the technology or the cases. I think it's a great cause. There's uh, 25 of us here at Offroom. And we're all really fired up about trying to bring as much good as we can to as many cases. So it's always, it's always a pleasure to talk about any of these things.
0: Also, if there is some police officers that need to get a hold of you, how do they do
1: it? You can get a hold of us either through authrum.com or uh, our email is solve, S-O-L-V-E, at Authorum.com. So either emailing us or just coming to Authorum is is the best place for a law enforcement officer to start and then again for uh for the general public the best place to start is dnasolves, uh, com. so yeah happy happy to to get in touch with anybody from law enforcement or the general public as we kind of it's kind of a team project you know we're working as a huge group um a huge group to, to kind of take these cases and, and transition them from unsolved to uh to, to solved
0: well once again, I want to say, Dr. David, thank you so much for coming on today. And um, I look forward to getting some feedback on, you know, what people thought of the show and hopefully seeing some more stuff go forward and seeing more
1: cases solved. Absolutely, yeah. We post all of our updates and uh, and, and cases that were solved using our technology. We Anytime we're allowed to post an update, we post it on a. Uh, dnasolves.com. But uh, anyways, I, I really appreciate it, and I'm happy to come back and chat again about cases in the future. All right. Well, that's a wrap.